Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Happy Monday. I am so excited for you to listen to this conversation today between me and my friend, writer Samuel Say. We are going to talk about um, his career, his testimony, what he writes about, which is specifically how we are supposed to respond from a biblical perspective to real instances of injustice. He will talk about his criticism of Black Lives Matter and the movement that it represents and And again, how we as Christians should be responding to all of the turbulence that's happening in our world right now. Before we get into that conversation, you guys, tomorrow my book is coming out. This has been such a long time coming. It's been almost two years since I originally talked to the people who published my book. So this has been a long process. It's been a labor of love. It has been a group project with you guys, everyone who has ever messaged me, emailed me, asked me a question, given me feedback, provided me with wisdom and insight into this culture of self-love and how we as Christians should be able to analyze it, break it down, and replace it with the truth of God's word. You guys have contributed to this book, You're Not Enough, and That's Okay, Escaping the Toxic Culture of Self-Love. I am so excited for you guys to finally have this in your hands. If you go to alibethstuckycom slash book. You can click on buy the book or pre-order the book and it will take you to a page that will show you all the places that you can buy it online. So you can purchase it um, on Amazon. You can purchase it at Books A Million. You can purchase it at barnesandnoble.com. Also, it may be available at your local bookstore. It's probably available at your local library. If not, you can ask these places to carry it. And so go to alibethstuckycom slash book. You can find more information about it. It is, a lot of people ask me, is this just for women? As you can see, if you're watching on YouTube, it is a pink book. It is from a female perspective. All the other perspectives that I have in the book, I've got some stories from some listeners that they sent me in their experiences with the culture of self-love. That's from a female perspective. So yes, it is primarily targeted towards women because the culture of self-love primarily targets women. But can a man get something out of it? Sure. And if you are a man who happens to listen to the podcast, if you've got a daughter, if you've got a girlfriend, if you've got a wife, if you've got a mother, who you think would like this book, it's really encouraging for all ages of women, then I encourage you to get it too. Now, another question I have received is, is this okay for young teenagers? Like, what is the age? So we do talk about some, I would say, mature subjects. I talk about some of my own um my own regrets, my own mistakes that also led me to uh, learn the lessons that I articulated in this book. And I talk some about college experiences and my own testimony that I would say deal with more mature subjects. So it just depends on the maturity level of your daughter, if that's who you're buying the book for, if you are willing to read the book with them. If you've got young girls, like say ages 13 to 15 that you are looking to buy this book for, I would encourage you, you do what you think is best as their parent, but I would encourage you to read this along with them and to talk through these things with them. I would say it's a good book in general for ages 16 plus, since it does kind of deal with things that maybe you as a parent would want to be the one to talk to them about. So I just want to give you that heads up. Another question that I get is, what if I'm in Australia or what if I'm in Canada? When I try to buy it on Amazon, I can't, uh, it won't let me purchase the book. 
you have to go to the domain that is in your area. So you can't go to the AmericanAmazon.com. You have to go to the domain that corresponds with where you live and you will be able to purchase it. Yes, it's on Audible. It will be read by yours truly. And yes, it is also on Kindle. A lot of people have asked me for a paperback version and I don't really know the answer to that. I think that will be available, but those are all the places that you can get it. As um, as I have said many times, if you are a woman, join Women's Book Club with Ali Stack. We'll be going through this book together. We'll be starting in a couple of weeks um, so I can give people some time to actually purchase the book and I can have time to approve the many, many requests that I have to enter the group. It is a private group and it is just for women. So join that book club. We will be going through this book and then later we'll be going through lots of other books as well. If you have requested to join and I haven't approved you, it's not personal. I've got like probably as we're speaking 350 requests that I'm trying to go through and I don't just willy-nilly go through them. I actually look to see who is requesting and then I accept people. So make sure that you answer all the questions, that you look at the rules, then you request to join and I promise that I will get to you. So you're not enough and that's okay. Escaping the toxic culture of self-love. It's out tomorrow. I will be on Fox News on Wednesday night. Shannon Bream's show talking about this. I am on radio shows talking about it. I might even be on some of your favorite podcasts. I'll be on Ben Shapiro's show. I'll be on Candace Owens' show. I'll be on Dan, Crins- uh, Dan Crenshaw's show. I'll be on Graham Allen's show. So all the fun conservative commentators and a lot of Christian influencers also that you know have graciously allowed me to be on to talk about this book. So I'm just so excited. Uh, thank you guys so much for your support. And please, if you will, go out and purchase You're Not Enough and That's Okay, Escaping the Toxic Culture of Self-Love. And when you have read the book, I would love for you to give me uh, a positive a five-star review on Amazon if you do love the book and those are your honest feelings about it. If you've got questions, always feel free to reach out to me. I would love to engage with you about the book. And of course, we will be doing that Um and uh, Allie's book club, Allie Stuckey's book club on Facebook. Okay, now that I've gotten that out of the way, without further ado, here is my friend, uh, pro-life activist and writer, Samuel Say. Samuel, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. A lot of people who listen to my podcast have heard of you and heard of your blog before because I've referenced it. You've got a lot of great and helpful content over there. But for those who maybe haven't heard of you, can you tell everyone who you are and what you do? Mm, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm a Ghanaian Canadian. Uh, I live in uh, right next to uh, Toronto. And um, yeah, I immigrated from Ghana when I was 10 years old. Uh, and I, I was originally living in Montreal, Canada. And, um, you know, we immigrated, you know, um, I came with my, my um, I immigrated with my single mom. Uh, she came here three years before I did. Um, right now, it's very difficult for um, I mean, these days when a, a family or a member of family is uh, immigrating to the, the West, particularly America or Canada, they usually come with their, with their children. But when I was, um, this is back in the 90s, uh, late 90s, at the time, it was very common for parents to move to uh, the States or Canada on their own and then bring their children after that. And that's what happened with me and my mom. But yeah, as I said, I grew up in a single um, you know, parent household with my mom. And, um, you know, my dad left my family uh, right before I was born. And this is back during mm-hmm. the 80s. And in the 80s, Ghana had implemented a communist um you know, regime. Uh, there's a dictator there, and 
it, the poverty destroyed uh, a lot of Ghanaians, and that actually is one of the reasons why my dad left our family because, which is, you know, that's his his sin, his his uh, failure. But bad policies can create bad parents, and um, you know that's what. So anyway, then through that, my mom we immigrated to Canada, and by the grace of God, when I was 19. Um, I was at a church and I heard the gospel, which I heard many times before, but I heard the gospel and mm. um, God just um, just made, you know, open himself. God opened my eyes and um, I saw him clearly I, as in, I, you know, by through faith, I I, uh, I loved him. And um, that was 19. And since then, I've been developing a passion for theology and wanting to uh, write to help people understand um, some of the things happening around us. And um, in 2015, in light of the Ferguson riots, I decided to start a blog to help uh, my friends understand why I did not um, support Black Lives Matter. And um, over the last five years since then, um, the blog has, you know, has reached other people uh, outside of my friends and I'm very grateful. And on top of that, two years ago, I also just started um um, joining the pro-life um, movement and working for a um, organization here in Canada named uh, CCBR, which is short for the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform. Mm. And um, I'm, yeah, so I'm, you know, kind of living the dream and uh, doing two things that I'm very passionate about: blogging and uh, saving preborn babies. Yeah. So since you've been talking about this very contentious subject of as a Christian, not standing with Black Lives Matter, has there been a, a lot of pushback, not just from your friends, but as your blog has grown from uh, the greater public in general? Yeah, yeah. Um, when I started blogging, I didn't, I knew what I would be saying was unpopular, but I was not at the time prepared for how unpopular it would be. Um, right. I've lost some very dear friends over this stuff. Mm. Um, and um, outside of that too, yes, I receive a lot of hate mail um, from a lot of white people telling me how much how much more they love black people than I do. Right, right. <laughs> Which is always fascinating. Um, but yeah, um, you know, there's been a, you know, I have a white girlfriend and she's been attacked as well too. Um, so it's, there's um, almost daily I'm receiving, um, you know, people are calling me a coon or Uncle Tom and mm. um, a lot of uh, that kind of uh, racial slurs against me. Right. Can you explain, um, at least summarize as, you know, concisely or as thoroughly as you want to, um, your stance on Black Lives Matter and, and why you don't agree with them? Mm-hmm. So people oftentimes try to separate Black Lives Matter, the slogan, and Black Lives Matter, the organization or the movement. Right. I, I think that's almost impossible mm. in the sense that the the slogan, just the words, Black Lives Matter, of course, is true. But I oftentimes liken it to, especially being a pro, pro-life pro advocate, to the, the word pro-choice. Mm. The word pro-choice by itself means one thing. But we know culturally it means entirely something else. So Black Lives Matter, the slogan and the movement are very much linked and they don't mean what people think it means. So Black Lives Matter, I don't agree with them because 
they they're um, what they say they, they claim is genocide against black people in America and here in Canada. We have our our own chapter here, uh, Black Lives Matter chapter in Canada, and um, you may have probably heard of uh, they are the ones that uh, mentioned. Um, um, that uh, what you say white people are subhuman uh, right. because they don't have melanin. Yeah, um, so the, I think that was the co-founder of BLM in Toronto. She had this yes. long just for the people who don't know. She had this long Facebook post from a while ago that explained why white people are actually kind of almost deformed humans or subhumans yes. because we don't yeah. have the right amount of melanin. Honestly, it's kind yeah. of similar to the argument that Nick Cannon made not that long ago that white people are closer to savages and we lack mm-hmm. compassion because we don't have as high of melanin counts. But the co-founder yeah. of BLM in Toronto, I mean, she really believed this and, and pushed this kind of stuff. So anyway, you can yeah. continue. I just wanted to make sure yeah. that people knew exactly no. what we were talking about. <laughs> And just uh, even then, she was pressed not too uh, hard, even toughly, uh, too tough uh, by the uh, by the uh, the press here in Toronto. But when she was asked to clarify and to apologize, she refused to do so. So you're right that she really does affirm it. And um, anyway, so we have our own chapter here. And, um, you know, I don't agree with their ideology. They've you know on their website. They're very clear about. Um, how they want to destroy the nuclear family, which is a major problem because that's actually um, what's hurting black families, that the breakdown of the nuclear family is what's leading to high abortion rates, high criminal rates, um, high poverty rates, and we know the numbers on that. So they are actually, if Black Lives Matter really mattered to them, they would not want to destroy the very foundation of, um, you know, of a good family. And, um, And then also... Um, they're very pro LGBTQ and as a Christian, I cannot uh, affirm that. And, um, as I mentioned before, they are extremely pro abortion. You know, you're pro abortion when Planned Parenthood is almost obsessed with, uh, Mm. you know, with supporting you. Um, they just can't get enough of Black Lives Matter. And, um, you know, so I just, you know, ideologically, facts-wise, in every facet, um, they're very much anti-Christian and really anti-logic and anti-facts, and I can't support an organization like that. So for the people who say, okay, I'm with you, can't support the organization, can you explain a little bit more why you would encourage a Christian in particular not to say, okay, not the organization, but black lives do matter. And they're using the hashtag, they're using the phrase, they're posting about it on social media. Why would you say or caution them against doing that? Mm-hmm. And this is for Christians? Is it Christians? Yeah, specifically for okay. Christians. Yeah. The Bible has better words for affirming life than a group that hates mm. the Bible. Mm. Right. As Christians, we want to be affirming what the Bible says. And as I said before, you know, we, you, you, we don't live in a bubble. You, you live in a culture where words and rhetoric matter. And every hashtag is a promotion for Black Lives Matter. You know, so, you know, there are many people who would say who'd be comfortable saying that they believe in, you know, planning, you know, being a parent and everything else. Well, yes, but you can't say you believe in Planned Parenthood because, well, Planned Parenthood means, you know, killing babies right right that's an organization as i said before you can say you're pro-choice sure but at least without some strong you know explanation or context you then would be saying that you are really pro-abortion right so black lives matter when you say black lives matter that wasn't a term that was used anywhere near 
as uh, often as, as it is being used now until the organization propped up. And it is really their rhetoric and it is part of their movement. So anytime you affirm that it is whether a person may, may not intend on doing so, it is a promotion of that movement. You know, and there are many people, too, who are not, who are not very aware of the differences, well, who are not aware of the major problems within Black Lives Matter. So if you are aware of who they are and you are affirming and supporting the slogan, you are then going to be leading many vulnerable people, many naive people um, into thinking that you are affirming the, the organization themselves. And that is not a, a wise thing to be doing. Right. What about the Christian teachers that I've heard say, okay, yeah, we know that the organization and maybe even the phrase stands for things that we don't agree with, all the things that you just mentioned, plus things like defunding the police, other kind of policy prescriptions that we are just not in line with, but at least they're stepping up, but at least they are showing us the issues that we need to be talking about. I've heard some Christian teachers say, oh, this, the existence of this self-proclaimed Marxist organization proves that the church has failed in talking about systemic injustices and systemic racism. So instead of criticizing them, we just need to step up to the plate and we need to kind of link arms with them and to go forward in the same direction that they are, even even if it's with different tactics. What do you say to the Christian who mm -hmm. gives that kind of critique to what you just said? Mm -hmm. That assumes that they have the right premise, but the wrong solution. Mm. But no, they have the wrong solutions because they have the wrong premise. That is very important. Um, the civil rights movement, for example, they had the right solution because they had the right premise that there was injustice. They have evidence of injustice obviously happening. It was tangible, true systemic racism, and they offer the right solution. Right. And then you also have, of course, the abolitionist uh, who, um, you know, obviously also had the right premise and the right uh, solution. Black Lives Matter. They, so, for example, as it pertains to uh, George Floyd, when they see a cop um, killing a black man, context doesn't matter. Motivation doesn't matter. With their ideas, since they already believe that the American government, or in my case, the Canadian government, is um, committing genocide against black people, as soon as they see that, and they immediately believe that is a racist incident. And that is what fuels their entire organization. So because they believe that, in their mind, it doesn't matter what George Floyd's, uh, what Derek Chauvin's intentions were in terms of his, you know, in, I mean, what, you know, he was, a, that was bad policing at the very basic level, very bad policing. And I, saw, I saw the full video recently where it has more context to it all, but still yeah. at the very end, it was bad policing. Right. Um, but with that said, because in their mind, they believe that the entire American government or Canadian government is um, committing genocide against black people through the police. That's why they believe you need to defund the police. Their ideas, their bad ideas is, um, is is pushing their bad policies. So the idea that they are right, you know, they are they are right to be thinking that there's an injustice against black people in the world. 
there are no facts that prove that. As a Christian, if I believe that the, the American government is committing genocide against people like me, and we can't forget that, I'm a black man, and I, if I really believe this, I would not, of course, be trying to defend the police or the government in this case here. But um, as a Christian, if I believe that God calls me to honor my government, if I am saying the government is trying to kill people like me and I don't have the facts to prove that, that I'm bearing false witness and I'm slandering my government, we all forget this, right? With, with this pandemic, a lot of Christians are saying we need to honor and obey our government. And that's true in many, unless, of course, they're, you know, telling us to sin. But that also includes honoring your government. If you don't have the facts to prove that the American government or the Canadian government is trying to kill black people, but you're saying it is so, when well, you don't have the evidence to prove it, because there's no evidence, right? So then it becomes a major problem. And then the solution in, com in terms to the, um, with the church, in times past, the church, unfortunately, many people within the church joined the world in, uh, in sin, in racism. Um, and yet, of course, if it wasn't for the church, through the abolitionist movement, and through, in some cases, them um, supporting the civil rights movement, you wouldn't have had justice and liberty for black Americans. Yeah. But the problem is that right now, a lot of churches are joining the world in how to respond to this, which is not dissimilar to what happened with a lot of people in the church through the, in, the, um, in the civil rights movement and then in, in through the abolitionist movement where they refused to stand on biblical theology and instead they joined in, world, at the time, worldly philosophies through white supremacy, but now it's worldly philosophy through social justice. Right. And, you know, that is not at all helpful um, to, um, to the church and is not at all honoring Christ. to interrupt the conversation with Samuel to tell you guys about Laurel Springs. So I know that you guys, you love your kids to death, but it's been an adjustment probably learning how to homeschool on top of all of the other responsibilities that you have. And you're wondering what it's going to look like in the fall. Maybe you're in an area where you've kind of just been told indefinitely that school isn't opening up and you're like, okay, I'm done with this. I'm done with the public school system. Maybe you're even done with your private school because you feel like they are deferring your child's education for too long. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to be responsible for my child's education. We are going to transition into homeschooling. Laurel, Springs can help you do that. So online learning, it might be new for your family, but Laurel Springs has been doing this for nearly 30 years. They are the experts in online learning. Laurel Springs has the tools, the curriculum your child needs to maintain their learning unhindered by whatever the future holds. Their flexible learning programs designed for students in kindergarten through 12th grade offer challenging and diverse courses, including summer courses. Laurel Springs is accredited by the Western Association of Schools and Colleges and Cognia, which means that their transcripts are recognized by colleges and universities worldwide. Register your child at laurelsprings.com slash Allie, that's A-L-L-I-E. And if you do, you will get a waived registration fee. That is laurelsprings.com slash Allie for your waived registration fee, laurelsprings.com slash Allie. I definitely recommend checking them out if there's any 
anything good that has come from this pandemic and all of the craziness that has resulted from it, it is that a lot of parents are feeling empowered and they are feeling motivated to change their child's education for the better and having more involvement in their child's education. And they're seeing the benefits in actually having their children at home. But the good news is you don't actually have to do that alone. You don't have to, if you don't want to, come up with your own curriculum. You can go somewhere like Laurel Springs and they can help you. They can provide the curriculum that you need to make sure that your child is getting a thorough and a good and a high quality education. So make sure that you go to laurelsprings.com slash Allie and check them out. Okay, back to Samuel Say. I think a lot of churches have been convinced that the movement that's happening right now and the talk of systemic injustices and systemic racism is a direct parallel to the civil rights movement, which is then a direct parallel to um, the abolition. And so maybe a lot of church leaders are thinking, well, the church kind of failed, dropped the ball in some ways, at least in the 20th century, and fighting yeah. for liberty and justice for all here in the States. And so now we are going to make sure that we're on the right side of history. The problem is, as you explained really well, is that it's not the same premise as during the abolition. It's not the same premise as during the civil rights. Those were correct premises that, okay, our ideals in America that we are all created with certain unalienable rights, among them being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that we are equal in value and should be equal under the eyes of the law. Slavery was obviously, um, it stood opposed to those principles. Uh, Jim Crow and the systemic discrimination that black people dealt with in America in the 20th century stood against those ideals. Um, But what is happening right now, just based on the data that we have, um, it's not a parallel, this idea that that white people or white police officers are hunting uh, black people in the streets at disproportionate rates um, compared to white people. It's just not factual. So it starts with a mm-hmm. false premise and then it leads to, like you said, false solutions, which are mm-hmm. these kind of social justice, very intangible, the work of anti-racism, deconstructing whiteness and white supremacy, all of these things that don't really mean anything and are just covers for kind of critical theory. Um, Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I think the church has bought into the idea that what's happening right now is exactly the same as what happened in the 1960s. um, And it's just not. Why do you think, Mm -hmm. you recently recently wrote on this, uh, why do you think churches and particularly young people in the church are so susceptible to mm-hmm. this narrative, to this rhetoric mm-hmm. and social justice theology in general. Mm-hmm. There are many reasons why. And the immediate um, answer to that, I think, is an over overcorrection, an overreaction to mm-hmm. the moral majority and the fundamentalists uh, in the 80s and 90s, where those guys would sometimes just they oftentimes would stray um, from, I think, biblical wisdom and were too focused on politics at times. Uh, Now, of course, you and I, we we very much care about politics, as we should, Um, but it's very easy to make that an idol and to forget the gospel in doing so. And I think a lot of churches in reaction to that thought that that was rightly so, um, a, a, a 
somewhat unhelpful means at times. And then they said, we're not going to teach politics at all. We're not going to talk about justice at all. So then you had pastors, parents not teaching their young children justice. So then they end up going to high school and especially college. And then they're learning from they, they, they are learning what they think is justice in colleges, where it's really an injustice. And then they return home or they return to their churches and their pastors and parents are like, wait a minute, how are you now supporting Antifa and Black Lives mm-hmm. Matter? What happened? Well, what happened is that you didn't teach them. So mm-hmm. they, they didn't have any concept of that. You know, I had to learn by the grace of God through the scriptures and then just studying and figuring out for myself what was true because what was out, what was out, sorry, what, what I was taught in school is exactly um, if if I had if I had um, continued believing in what I was taught in school, I'd be at the very forefront of joining the Black Lives Matter movement or even Antifa. Uh, we're forgetting that this stuff is becoming very much mainstream because it has become very much mainstream in the schools already, and is just now coming to the very forefront of our culture and our streets. Um, so you have that already, and unfortunately, um, one of so. I'm, you know, I'm reformed and I know you are as well, too. And I think there was 10, 12 years ago, you had so many black people in Britain, Canada and America becoming reformed. And a lot of black people were raised um, as liberals. And when we joined the reformed church, as in we black people, we joined reformed churches, white, mostly white reformed churches. We were united over the gospel rightly so. But since we were never addressing these justice issues, these these political issues, a lot of us were still voting or, or still thinking like leftists and liberals. But a lot of our white members in the church were voting conservative still. And we weren't talking about these issues. So then when Black Lives Matter emerges on the scene, and especially with you know, Trayvon Martin's killing and uh, Michael Brown's especially, all of a sudden, we then, as Vadi Bokum uh, uh, has said before, too, I don't know he was on your show last week, and all of a sudden, the false unity is really that much more clear. Right. And you see that, wait a minute, we had different views on justice. That was never taught. And I had some of my black friends from across the world saying, my pastor's a racist. I had no idea he was a racist. I had some of them saying, I, all this time, I didn't know that he would want to make me a slave. So just because now it's, you know, our our uh, different views on justice is exposed, they now think that pastors and the members that they had loved for so long, they now believe they're racist because they have different views on justice. Right. So since so many reformed people, um, since so many black people became reformed and that tension and disunity really became um, a major issue. You had so many white pastors then who had started to embrace this multi-ethnic churches and everything else, all of a sudden being afraid that if they reject Black Lives Matter, then, because I've had many emails of pastors telling me they're struggling with this or that they're being pressured by other pastors into accepting Black Lives Matter and critical theory and all that. And many of them are afraid that if they 
denounce Black Lives Matter, they will lose their black members, or then they will no longer be able to receive a lot of uh, black visitors to their church, right. which has then led to a very seeker-sensitive type of thinking where if we embrace the culture, then we'll be able to attract people that we think are very coveted in our culture. Right. But we have to just preach the gospel, preach the gospel right. to all groups, preach the gospel to white people, brown people, black people, anybody. The irony is a lot of the black a lot of black people became reformed because of the gospel. Mm -hmm. It wasn't because of anything else. It was the gospel. Right. So if you want black people in your church, preach the gospel. Because it is God who saves sinners. All kinds of sinners. Not you. It's God. And you would think we should know this because we're reformed people. That we know it is not our words that changes souls or that saves right. souls. It is God. It's God's mercy. So just preach the gospel and be faithful to biblical theology. You know, that is one of the frustrations that I've had in seeing this is that a lot of pastors assume that for whatever reason, for black people, the gospel isn't enough. You might mm. be able to preach the gospel to your mostly white congregants because you know that's what they need and that's sufficient for them, but they have it in their heads that black people need something else besides yeah. the gospel, that yeah. something else will save them, something else will comfort them. They have to preach social justice and critical theory and um, worldly views and perspectives and solutions on race in order to feel accepted. And that shows not really as much what they think about black people as it is what they think about the gospel, that the mm -hmm. same gospel that Jesus saw fit to preach, that Jesus saw as sufficient to preach and to have preached to both the Jews and the Gentiles, two groups mm -hmm. that were very far apart mm -hmm. at the time. And Ephesians tells us that he broke down that wall of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles. If the mm -hmm. gospel was powerful enough to reconcile, first of all, all of us sinners to uh, a holy God by grace through faith. And then it was powerful enough to reconcile two very disparate groups, the Jews and the Gentiles. I wonder why it is that mm -hmm. some pastors today don't believe that the gospel is sufficient from the pulpit to achieve the same reconciliation that mm -hmm. Jesus and the mm -hmm. apostles saw that mm -hmm. it could. Mm -hmm. You know, it's um, in, in Romans 1, um, um, Paul mentions that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation for both the Jews and the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. Now, at the time, as you said, th there there was a lot of uh, tension between right. the groups. And he's saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it was, it's what will save them. It's what they need. Right. And it's sad because I struggle with this, you know. I know that as a black man, I can get away with so much sin from in terms of on how I'm thinking about this stuff. I can say some horrible things to my um, to some white friends mm. and people will not pursue me as they say, hey, brother, you're sinning against this person. You got to repent and reconcile. Unfortunately, I'm seeing so many people on social media now who would think that is, it's wrong to correct a black person when they're in sin over these issues. But if you're not correcting me because I'm black, that's actually racist, right? Right. And what I need most is, 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 is for me to grow more in love with God and more in love with my members, right? So through all of this, many, <laughs> we, are, we are failing to love God faithfully and we're failing to love black people faithfully uh, faithfully mm -hmm. because if the gospel 
and holiness is what's important, and which, of course, is what is important. And we're failing to say what many black people need to hear, not just many black people, but also many white people need to hear. Yeah. If we're not saying these things, it's not love. It's actually hate. Right. It's hate because God is love. And what affirms who God is, biblical theology, is the most loving thing you can you can affirm. Right. So but if you betray that and you embrace uh, worldly philosophies, that's a form of hate. And you're actually then hurting people's souls. Right. And unfortunately, a lot of groups that they posture themselves as Christian groups. And unfortunately, um, they do exactly what you just said, that, you know, Ephesians, again, talks about letting go of all bitterness and wrath and resentment and malice and anger, obviously, because that's what we're just called to do as Christians to glorify God. And those things are sin, but also graciously, those things, uh, letting go of those things relieves us of a burden that crushes us, that makes us unable to love other people and to live a life of freedom freedom and joy. And so when you tell people of any skin color that, hey, hold on to that wrath and that anger and that malice that is actually justified in your case, like you said, that's not loving at all. Not only is that not pointing them to the liberation that Christ offers sinners, um, but it is also allowing them to be trapped and burdened and to hold mm-hmm. on to a weight that they yep. shouldn't be responsible or yep. obligated to carry. Mm-hmm. And so I just see a lot of unintentional, probably, lack of yeah. love from yeah. Christians, particularly white yeah. Christians, to fellow black yeah. Christians, because they've been told that any correction or admonition or encouragement in the Lord is a form of white supremacy. And that's the worst thing yep. that you can, that's the worst thing that you can do, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, um, one of the most, controversial and it's always surprising people one of the most controversial things uh, or articles i ever wrote was um i shared a story about how i was walking in a tunnel as i'm walking in a tunnel um this is a dark tunnel uh it's a pretty intimidating tunnel (laughs) um as i'm walking in that tunnel there's a, a young white lady who is walking towards me and as soon as she sees me she clutches her purse and she essentially attaches herself. She glues herself to the wall. It's a pretty dirty wall. So you must really want to like avoid me if yeah. you're going to be doing this. And she, she does that. And she's just, then she just speeds up way past me. And I, uh, in the beginning, I'm like, oh, this is, you know, like, here, here it is again, a white yeah. woman being afraid of a black person and all that. And, but then as I keep walking, I'm like, wait a minute, why am I assuming she did this because I'm black? If she was a black woman, I wouldn't have thought it was racism. But because she's white, I'm assuming the worst of her. And I'm thinking she's assuming the worst of me because I'm black. I'm, I said, look, she may have been racist, maybe. But all I know for sure is that I'm the one being racist. Because mm. if she wasn't white, I wouldn't think she was racist. Many Christians said, Sam, that's wrong. She is a racist. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm applying biblical theology here. The Bible says that I have to assume the best of people. I have to consider others as less, uh, as more significant than myself. And when we, when you try to apply this today concerning the racial issues, all of a sudden, when you're again applying biblical theology, people, many Christians now think you're in sin. And that you're in the wrong for doing so. And that says a lot about where we are 
trending towards right now as a society and as a, as a church. You know, women get the same message pretty often, maybe not as much from reformed circles, um, but just in general, we get the message that any anger or resentment towards men as a collective or the patriarchy as a collective, whether or not you personally have been mistreated, we're not talking about individual relationships, but just in general and intangibly, any anger that you have towards that is totally justified. Any Mm. slander, any Mm. kind of Mm. unfounded Mm. criticism that you have towards this nebulous patriarchy, that is justified. And if a man calls you out in sin, a brother in Christ, well, that is just the patriarchy at work. That is just mansplaining and toxic masculinity. And really, I mean, this just kind of goes to show um, this is another example of kind of the effect of critical theory of the oppressed versus the oppressor. If you are Mm -hmm. told that you belong to a group that has been historically oppressed, you are justified in whatever behavior Mm -hmm. that you use to push back against your so-called oppressor, whether or not you have actually been oppressed. It's a gospel of grievance that Mm -hmm. is being preached to so many of these groups. And the gospel of grievance doesn't do anything to actually liberate you. That's the problem. And that's really what, I don't know, it makes me sad. Do you agree with that? Absolutely. Um, It essentially says that you should repay evil for evil. Mm. That is what it's saying, um, which the Bible Or is evil clear. for perceived evil. Mm, exactly. That's a, yes, that's a, that's a very well... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because um, it, it, it's, it's really concerning because, you know, the Bible is very clear on this issue. So no matter what people have done to me or what I think they've done to me, God still calls me to think clearly, to think lovingly towards them. I, I mentioned to some people that, look, I know that Derek Chauvin, he, um, you know, he killed, he killed um, George Floyd in a very, um, in an unjust manner. Um, even, even though I know, again, the videotape shows that, um, unfortunately, George Floyd was um, resisting arrest and everything else. But the last, you know, the latter part of the entire um, right. altercation or the incidents, um, you know, he did not react in a very um, uh, wise manner that ended up leading to George Floyd's death. But I mentioned that, you know, God still calls me to love Derek Chauvin, hmm. which means that what I don't know, I can't pretend that I do. So all this right now, the last two, three months, a lot of the destruction happening in America a lot of the vitriol and the the division and all that is stemming primarily not from the fact that George Floyd was killed. Not really. The issue is that he was killed because of racism. Mm. The idea, though, is, but there's no even evidence for racism. There isn't any evidence of that. So here we've built, again, a false premise, which has led to very bad uh, uh, solutions. Right. So um, it, it's, it's just that if, if we are not going to be reacting faithfully, if we're not going to be focusing on blessing, it, it may sound a bit strange, but, you know, bless. I want to bless um, I want to bless a Derek Chauvin or anybody who has even done wrong by making sure I'm thinking clear, clearly about that. 
because then I can love God faithfully and I can love my neighbors faithfully and not be pushing ideologies or or, or false premises that will end up leading to horrible uh, reactions, including riots and everything else. Right. So you and I know and agree on the fact that obviously there are racists that exist in the sense that there are people who hate, which is really the only ism that Jesus talks about is hate that starts in the heart. Um, But people hate based on skin color. People hate based on sex. They might hate based on nationality or religion or something like that. And under the umbrella of hate, that is condemned by God. The Bible says you can't love God and hate your brother. So we know Mm -hmm. that hatred based Mm -hmm. on anything, including race, is a sin. And we know that that exists. At one point, it was systemic. Now, some people still say that the legacy of that is here today. But let's maybe not get into all of that and simply ask— What biblically does the Christian do when they see actual racism, when they know that actual racists exist, when maybe they see a system or a practice or a process that is discriminatory, or where they see real injustice, for example, like abortion and through Planned Parenthood? How does the Christian react to that in a way that is gospel-centered and that is biblical without taking the tactics and the premises and the ideologies of the world? Mm. Yeah, um, God calls us uh, to—it's one of my favorite texts in the Bible. It's a very simple text, but it's um, abhor evil or hate evil, love good, and establish justice. Mm Mm-hmm. We would not have the the West, you know, coming from Ghana, um, you know, a very poor African country, coming from you know Ghana and coming into the West, the influence of of biblical theology has been very. Uh, I mean, you see that in 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 the West, and the, I'm saying that because a a lot of Christians um, founded. You know these Western nations based on Christian principles, not of course perfect uh, not perfect, uh, not perfectly, but it was the the Bible clearly was a very much a huge foundation for them. I mentioned this because, as a, so as you know, I'm a pro life advocate, and the reason why I very much care about that is because I know that Roe v. Wade in America and over here in Canada, abortion is legal and sanctioned, and Planned Parenthood and abortion centers very much target black uh, preborn babies. Well, God calls me to hate that, to love preborn babies, and to establish justice. So I respond to that. Uh, right now, my work is uh, I'm a community liaison, so I'm the one that is. Um, you know, working to uh, speak to pastors and telling them, well, speaking with them as to how to get involved in the pro-life movement, um, how we can share resources and how we can get their churches um, educated on this issue and how they can come to the streets with us and go to different, you know, go to schools with us and just share the truth and share God's truth about abortion. And by the grace of God, we've been able to save many lives and change many minds. But the, we react to injustice. Um, not, so right now, one of the issues with Black Lives Matter or this critical theory movement and and uh, and social justice is that you have them repaying evil for evil, and then you have them using oftentimes racist means or unjust means in their mind to to um, tackle um, to tackle unjust systems or unjust laws, which of course is wrong. Mm-hmm. But 
you do so peacefully, you do so by listening, you do so carefully, you do so making sure they have the facts in front of you, that you are not, you know, going to also forget the gospel in light of that Christ was living in a very, when he was on earth, he was living on, in a very unjust uh, culture. The Roman, the Roman Empire was brutally oppressive. And he, he, he said certain things that we know he, he, of course, knew that the Romans were oppressive. We know that. And yet his focus was, was the gospel. And we can't forget that. Right. Um, and also, if you live in this culture, you are going to have some form of un, of injustice against you, either systemically or um, or just relationally. But you react to that by being patient, by, of course, saying, hey, brother, sister, or your neighbor, you've sinned, you've done this, and let's talk about why that's wrong, and let's tell you the solution against that addressing the gospel. Yes, and you gave such a perfect picture of how to fight an injustice uh, like abortion with the gospel, but you're also going out there, you're changing people's minds, and you're sharing the gospel, but you're also talking about the brutal reality of what abortion is and why preborn babies do matter and why they should be saved. In the same way, if someone, um, for example, they see something that is a tangible injustice in regards to discrimination against a black person or discrimination against any other kind of person that is a tangible injustice, there is the possibility, of course, and the responsibility, I would say, to preach the gospel into that and Mm -hmm. to do work in accordance to what the Bible says. Now, that's very different than this kind of nebulous idea of so-called doing the work of anti-racism, which is basically mm-hmm. an equivalent to just saying, oh, well, we need socialism, and that is how we are going to make everyone equal, and we need reparations and all of that. There is a way to speak up and to say, hey, you know, this is this practice is oppressive against this one group of people, this socioeconomic class or immigrants or whatever it is. I think the mm-hmm. important thing is that we are getting our definition of what justice is from the Mm -hmm. Bible. God's justice Mm -hmm. is impartial, so it doesn't Mm -hmm. show partiality to the great or to the poor, to one skin color or another. It is direct, it is individual, it is fair. And so Mm -hmm. we apply God's principles of justice to the things that we care about and how we go about fighting against them. And we also make sure that the things that we are told are injustices here are actual injustices. So looking Mm -hmm. at basic data, basic facts to see if something mm-hmm. is actually true that does mm-hmm. that does actually matter i think a mm-hmm. lot of times we unfortunately what we hear an example of systemic racism is just looking at disparities between two groups yeah. and attributing yeah. that as you have explained to racism well the christian yeah. is responsible for as you articulated so well saying but is that due to that do i know that or are there other policies in place for example a lack of school choice or unconditional welfare or um are the politicians in these cities predominantly minority cities are they not doing their jobs well do they have a corrupt uh, a corrupt prosecutor a corrupt mayor um And so it is we are beholden to the truth and to facts and to looking at actual policies and prescriptions Yes. I'm so glad you mentioned that because um, the whole premise for systemic racism today or for the perceptions of injustice against black people in our societies today is based on disparities. But there are major problems that comes with that. If we believe that, then we have to believe, 
as many anti-racists are forced to believe today because of their ideology, that we live in a more racist society today than going back to the, the height of the civil rights right. movement in the 60s, which many of them have said this, that we live in a much more sinister, more covert, but more sinister and more, you know, a worse um, um, oppression against black people today than before. Why? Because the disparities today have, are worse now than they were 50 years ago, right? So if we believe that, then we have to, if we believe that um, disparities are evidence for racism or systemic racism, now, of course, that can be true, but but not independently so, right? right? You can have a system that is unjust, that will lead to disparities, like slavery segregation, of course. Right. But disparities on their own do not prove discrimination. And right. I know you're a big fan of uh, Thomas Sowell, so um, we know he wrote that book, uh, that you know that brilliant book on uh, disparities and discrimination. Yes. But um, but on top of that, you also have major issues theologically as well. And so essentially, God was the was you know was was the king of ancient ancient Israel, the Mosaic law that you know that god you know the law that god gave to the uh, the ancient um, you know jews uh, through moses there was no provision for ending disparities none whatsoever hmm. if we're saying that disparities is evidence for systemic racism the way saying god god's law is systemically racist or systemically op oppressive against some of the groups some of the tribes in israel that but you know that for a fact, would have been, um, would have been also been, you know, this would have had, would have been, I guess, on the wrong end of disparities as well. Also, you have the parable of the talents, where you know, Christ shares the example of the parable of talents, and he talks about how there was a slave, there was a slave owner who gave his slaves, um, uh, he gave one five talents, which is essentially money for them to steward over, and he gave another one two talents, he gave another one one talent. In the parable, just kind of keep it short. In the parable, God, Christ does not suggest the disparities of talent is wrong, not at all. In fact, the third person who has the one talent, who ends up burying it and not being fruitful over it, when he he ends up complaining essentially over it, Christ rebukes that person because they are comparing their gifts. Uh, they're comparing other people's gifts and comparing and he's saying that well essentially it's not fair and i think that you are a wicked uh person for giving me this one talent so i didn't think anything of it the point is disparities are not evidence for anything right and when we start thinking that way we get into, into big trouble and of course historically today there is no society today that does not have racial disparities even as Thomas Sowell has said too, even in families, you're going to have, you know, with the same parents, same upbringing, everything else, you will have disparities amongst the children in that family. And if you believe also that disparities are strictly evidence for systemic racism, then what's the solution? What is it? I've asked many people, how do you overcome systemic racism? When will you believe it's over? Hmm. They all, they can't answer that. Right. Because if, if you think it can only be, if you think that you can only defeat um, systemic racism, if you have parity, then there's no hope because that will never happen. But then the only attempt, the only way to end it, of course, is where we go back to the wrong premise and the wrong solution, 
where then the only solution then in their mind is socialism. Right. Because then the attempt is then you have perfect equality of outcome, which right. never happens, of course, because in socialism, it will always lead to a political elite that will then oppress the, you know, everybody else who's equally poor. Right. Right? As you see right now in Venezuela, the whole nation is essentially equally poor, but the political el- elites are feeding, you know, are doing a good job of eating, um, you know, um, very well for themselves. Right. Right. It's they believe in redistributing the power and the capital from the group that is traditionally known as the oppressor to the groups that are traditionally known as the oppressed, whether or not the people in the oppressor group have actually been oppressors and whether or not the people in the oppressed group have actually been oppressed. So along that kind of thinking, the kind of thinking that says that all white people, no matter their station in life, are inherently more privileged than all non-white people, with that kind of mentality and the mentality that says you have to have equal outcomes, you have to force equal outcomes, basically taking everyone down to, it has to be, and this is not a racial statement, just in general, you would have to take everyone down, as Thomas Sowell says, to the lowest common denominator. It's always equality downward. It's never equality upward. And in that kind of thinking, you have the poor white person from Appalachia who is told that he has more privilege than Oprah Winfrey, the only female or one of the only female black billionaires in the world who was raised from mm-hmm. poverty in a much more racist America and through hard work has become a billionaire. We are told that the poor white child living in a trailer without parents has more privilege and has to redistribute that privilege in that wealth and capital equity whatever it is Mm -hmm. to someone like kanye west or to someone like oprah winfrey or to someone like jay-z and that is the only solution that a lot of these so-called anti-racists have to making everything Mm -hmm. equal that is not god's definition of justice now i do want to clarify and i want to see if you agree with this where there is disparity based on oppression, where we can look at something and say, hey, this is due to oppression. For example, you gave good examples of Jim Crow and of slavery obviously leading to disparities because of discrimination, because of oppression, and that was wrong and Mm -hmm. unjust. But if Mm -hmm. that exists anywhere today, for example, I think a good example of that is uh, the lack of school choice, unfortunately, in a lot of uh, poor black communities. And so they're forced to go to a school that isn't necessarily meeting their needs. Um, That to me is a form of systemic injustice that disproportionately affects black people. I do believe that Christians should be working for equity in that way. So parents can, you know, do what's best for their child. Do you agree with that? Or am I just kind of taking on my own form of social justice? No, I absolutely agree with that. I think um, one of the ironies of our society today is that you have men like Frederick Douglass, the abolitionists, where they advocated for liberty. Today, you have social justice groups who are advocating for control um, of black people. Right. <laughs> it's it's a it's a it's a bizarre world we live in now, where we should have because the biggest problem for black people throughout black American you know, for black Americans throughout history has been the government. And the government not giving black people liberty. Hmm. So why do we then want these teacher unions and the government to be controlling and forcing parents and, and their kids to not be able to choose for themselves where they want to be going to school? So school choice is very crucial. And as you, as you know as well, too, um, school, you know, 
children, you know, who go to, uh, you know, who go to, you know, um, who are not in that public school system where they don't have any control, they don't do as well as as kids who are going to these charter schools, right? So that's a very clear example that we don't care as a society or as or at least the people who advocate against school choice. They don't. The, the children's good isn't the benefit there. The benefit is really, unfortunately, on the teachers unions who end up receiving so much money. I know many of them complain about not receiving a lot of funding, but they receive so much funding, but mm-hmm. they're not actually putting it on the children. They're just exactly. putting it on several other means. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Uh, last question. You talked about in the beginning of this conversation how speaking about these things has unfortunately led to you losing friends. I can relate to that. And I know a lot of people listening to this can relate to that, or at least they're afraid if they do stand up and say some of the things that you just said, that they are going to lose friends. What is your encouragement and your Mm. advice to Christians in that same position? Mm. Even the only sinless person in this world lost friends. That's Mm. Christ, right? Um, not only did he lose friends, he lost his life because of of the truth. Now, of course, <laughs> I don't want to make any, uh, uh, you know, we are not sinless. Uh, we are not God. We are not the savior of the world. But the truth is that if you are going to be a faithful follower of Christ, if you are going to teach truth, if you're going to Teach truth, you're going to be saying unpopular things and offensive things, which will lead to losing friends. But yet you will win so many people to um, biblical theology and really to loving their neighbors. Because that's the the thing here. I want to try and help people love their neighbors. And I want to try and grow in loving my neighbors more. And if you... If you refuse to teach the truth because you're afraid of the consequences, then we get right back to so one of the things that I've learned a lot through reading history and reading why so many people were quiet during the civil rights movement or during the slave trade is because they were afraid of the consequences of speaking out against slavery and segregation. Mm. We think, how could they do that? How? How could they be quiet? Well, it's the same reason why we're quiet. It's the same reason why we're afraid, because they will lose friends, because they will lose families. But my trust is that, and my faith is in that I'll never lose my Savior. I'll never lose Christ. And he's my best friend by the grace, um, you know, by his grace. So teach the truth. Will you lose friends? Yes. But you never lose Christ. And by doing so, you never lose the truth, will, which will help society. And especially in the media, it will help your, you love your neighbors more. And what a relief, too, that as we see so much chaos and confusion waging in America, where people's definitions of justice and what is right and what is wrong changes on a daily basis, just according to Uh people's social whim and what the outrage mob says and their solutions are either they're both never ending and non-existent. They're very elusive and intangible. Like what a relief it is for Christians Uh that we have 
the ability to stand on the solid rock, mm. Jesus Christ, mm. who is the same mm. yesterday, today, and mm. forever. And we have the mm. Word of God, which is our objective source mm. of truth and defines mm. justice, defines mm-hmm. what hope looks like, what salvation looks like, mm-hmm. what loving your neighbor looks like. Mm-hmm. And we have a gospel that tears mm-hmm. down the dividing walls of hostility between brothers and sisters in Christ. And so mm-hmm. there's no reason for Christians to apologize for the Word of God, to apologize mm-hmm. for the truth. We have a solid rock on which we are standing. The rest of the mm-hmm. world is standing on sinking sand. And mm-hmm. it might Amen. look like they're building something right now, but it won't last past the storm. And so Amen. that's something that I think Christians can look forward to. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you so much for coming on my show. This was such an edifying conversation, and you just have such a um, a gentle and persistent and strong way of explaining things. And I know a lot of people are going to be blessed by this conversation. Can you tell everyone uh, where they can find you and follow you? Yes, um, people can, um, you know, find me on... Well, first, actually, thank you so much for having me on. Of course. Um, I, uh, I'm... Um, it's a huge honor. Uh, I'm a b- big fan of the show, and uh, it's you. a huge privilege. Uh, I know there's white privilege, but I feel very privileged <laughs> to be on well, the show. Well, thank you. They're relatable <laughs> uh, privilege. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, they can find me at slowtowrite.com. That's my blog. And they can find me on social media, too, uh, on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as uh, Slow to Write. They can also find me on Patreon if they choose to want to support me on uh, as also Slow to Write. And then also they can look for the organization that I look for, which is CCBR or our website, endthekilling.ca, endthekilling.ca. And um, they can uh, choose to support what we're doing here in Canada. Um, you know, I think a lot of Americans may not know this, but Canada is the only, essentially, really the only nation in the world next to, I suppose, um, are the two communist nations in North Korea and China who have no laws at all against abortion. Wow. So abortion is completely, I know you guys have had some states recently who have been expanding abortion um, to make it completely uh, legal yep. towards the very end of the, of the pregnancy. And it's been the case here for over the last 40 years um, or 30 years, I should say. So um, yeah, so just, you know, if you choose to want to uh, either be praying for us or supporting us uh, in thekilling.ca, please uh, do so. Well, thank you so much. This was an awesome conversation, and I will see you on Twitter. Yeah, thank you. <laughs>